It's been five years since NASA's test mission launched, and the spacecraft recently completed its first mission, fully observing the sky twice and finding hundreds of confirmed exoplanets as well as many, many more candidate exoplanets. So what happens now? The spacecraft is doing fine. There are still many planets out there to discover. Are there some new ideas for how TESS could maybe change its operations to observe different parts of the sky and maybe fill the hole that Kepler left when it lost its reaction wheels and really was unable to perform its primary mission? So my guest today is Dr. Nicole Cologne. She is with NASA Goddard, and we spend a really great conversation talking about what TESS has found so far, what kinds of discoveries can we expect in the future in the field of exoplanets, and what are some really interesting ideas on how TESS could be used to change the way it makes its observations, maybe to try and fill that gap in the science pipeline that Kepler left. So enjoy the conversation with Dr. Nicole Colon. How is TESS doing? Oh, Tess is doing great. <laughs> so uh, to explain what Tess is a little bit, um, Tess is NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And if you hadn't heard, it's actually been up in space for over five years now, um, which is That's super crazy. exciting. Yeah, time flies. Yeah, that feels like it was just yesterday. I know. It time flies. It was April yeah. 2018, the launch. I actually was there <laughs> and it was amazing. Um, and you know, so it's amazing to see how far Tess has come in five years, but yeah, it's going strong. Um, like the health, like there's no issues, like the health of the spacecraft across the board is, is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everything is going well. I mean, every spacecraft has little hiccups here and there and Tess is no exception. Um, but every time it recovers fully and it's just going along, chasing, you know, chasing, uh, the sky <laughs> basically and taking images. Um, yeah. yeah, continuously. So, you know, I scheduled this interview because we've reached the end of Tess's primary mission. So what was the goal of the primary mission? Hmm. Yeah, the primary mission was really designed to find exoplanets. So uh, planets outside of our solar system, still in our galaxy. So basically relatively nearby, if you consider how big the universe is. <laughs> But I was designed to find um, these exoplanets specifically around the closest stars to us. And it really wanted to focus on, or was designed to focus on, I should say, finding small planets around bright nearby stars, essentially. And so that was the goal, is really to do kind of like a survey of what we call the solar neighborhood, like our friends in the neighborhood near the sun, <laughs> near our solar system. How many planets are there and how many small planets can we find? Because to us, the small ones um, mean, you know, things like the size of our own planet, if possible, right? Like, can we find any small planets um, like ours, essentially? But, the, but from my understanding, the goal was, like scan the Northern hemisphere mm -hmm. one chunk at a time, scan the Southern hemisphere one chunk at a time, come back around, do it again. Mm -hmm. That's the mission. That was yeah. the primary mission, right? Yeah, exactly. It was, so it was only two years long. That's right. Yeah. So it spent a year surveying half the sky, essentially looking really, I mean, it looked at the whole sky, but its focus was on studying the nearby stars, especially to find planets. 
but yeah, it spent a year doing half the sky in the north and a year doing half the sky in the south. And that was the prime mission, you know, to get like a just like an all sky survey um, over two years. But now um, it's effectively been repeating that survey, you know, because we've learned that there's a lot to gain from an basically an all sky survey, just continuously monitoring the night sky from space. <laughs> so I think about the dynamics of, of mm-hmm. planetary motion that the mm-hmm. transit method that Tess is using really helps you pick up those hot Jupiters, the ones that are orbiting very quickly, mm-hmm. that the chances are, are very high. As you move into this next round, is the goal now to try and find the stuff that will have longer orbits, less likely chance of seeing in one observing run? Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, So the nominal uh, observing strategy for TESS has it observe any given chunk of the sky for about 27 days or so. So you're right. It's basically biased. Like in that 27 days, you know, it'll see dips from a planet around a star. And so that means that if we're looking for multiple dips, that the planet orbits in much less than 27 days, right? So it's really close to its star. Um, But now with, you know, actually, right, five years of data, (laughs) we're able to start looking at regions of the sky where we've observed for more than 27 days and, you know, start to stack the data, if you will, and like just stitch it all together and get those longer baselines to look for those longer orbits exactly so if you had like some planet that was say orbiting every five days Mm -hmm. then that would be very obvious if you're staring Mm -hmm. for 27 days but if you've got something that's say orbiting every 20 days you're only going to see it once if you're lucky Mm -hmm. twice if you're lucky in that 27 day period Mm -hmm. but if you stack up the two together now you've got 54 days absolutely you're going to get three Mm -hmm. if you're lucky yeah yeah So people have been looking, you know, for some of these um, events where you might see only one transit in a given observation period, but then they predict when you might see another one and then they, you know, wait a year or two for more test data and they check, did it transit again? And, And they're finding in some cases, yeah, they are finding planets with, you know, orbits of hundreds of days this way, which is really cool. Oh, that's really interesting. So, mm-hmm. so they see a transit in mm-hmm. that first run mm-hmm. and they know that the way things are lining up, they're going to be able to come back around and mm-hmm. should see the next transit for some subset of the stars that they're looking at. They make mm-hmm. a prediction. I mean, that's like science at its best, right? Yeah, yeah. You make a prediction <laughs> what you should see and then you see it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do we have a sense now with the survey that's been done so far how numerous planets are in our solar neighborhood? Mm. Yeah, there's there's a couple interesting points to make there. I mean, so I have to mention, you know, TESS is amazing, um, but the Kepler mission started it all from space, like in terms of, right, finding um, transiting planets from space. And the Kepler mission is what really told us that like it looked at an extremely small part of the sky uh, compared to TESS. And it found so many exoplanets there that we could basically say that on average, like any given star you look at will have one planet. That doesn't mean every star has a planet, you know, because some stars have multiple, some stars have none, but on average, right? So that's great if every star on average has one planet, Um, because that means TESS should be successful, right? (laughs) In its search of all the nearest stars now. And, um, 
And yeah, and so what we're finding with tests is that we have, um, well, we have uh, over 300 confirmed planets so far. And yeah, a lot of them are very nearby. And so we're finding that um, compared to, again, Kepler, if you will, Tess is finding like uh, multiple times, uh, you know, like twice as many or even three times as many planets as Kepler did nearby um, because, again, Kepler was focused on one like small patch of the sky and then Tess is looking everywhere. And so now, yeah, Tess is basically opening a floodgate of like, we didn't realize that all these planets were there. Like, even though we predicted they would be, <laughs> now we're able to really demonstrate that they are, you know? And so, yeah, Tess is finding, I think, I don't want to say more than expected, you know, like, because that's not true, but it, it almost feels like that. Like, because we're like, wait, how did nobody find this planet before? <laughs> you know? Because it was relatively close. There's a very clear yeah. signal that's passing in front of the, mm. of the star. It is yeah. kind of interesting, like, the ability to do photometry, to do the transit method. I mean, there are backyard astronomers that are confirming mm -hmm. with their, you know, with their backyard telescopes, they are confirming exoplanet discoveries using relatively inexpensive consumer equipment. It's, it's kind of surprising that, that the, that the first exoplanet took this long, you know, 1995 mm -hmm. to discover and with the radial velocity method, it's, mm -hmm. you would think that the transit method would have turned up planets first and we would have known about it for years earlier. Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, I, I agree. I think the case is that um, even though these like Kepler now tests have been incredibly successful and then, yeah, ground-based astronomers um, or citizen scientists, they are also equally successful now at, at doing this. Um, it's just that, you know, the, the probability of seeing a transit is actually quite low, which tells you something because it has to be the right alignment, right? For you to see the transit from our point of view. But then if we're finding so many transiting planets, that tells you something again about how common planets are that we're seeing that many so easily, right? That have the right alignment to see them pass in front of their star from our point of view. So it's like, literally, it's like the stars are aligning, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> to, to give us these, these um, opportunities to study these planets from ground and space. Yeah. So we, we talked about Kepler and the Kepler is this was this flagship mission. Mm -hmm. And as people are aware, it lost its reaction wheels sort of midway through the mission. And so it wasn't able to complete the primary mission in the way that it was expected to, but still found what more planets than any other instrument has found to date. Yeah. Do you think that tests will catch up over time with year after year after year, because like part of the magic of tests, in my opinion, is the orbit that was chosen that is incredibly stable, requiring no energy input from the spacecraft itself. Like, do you think it will catch up to Kepler over time? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question because, um, with Kepler, you know, there are thousands of planets, um, that have been confirmed from Kepler discoveries and, you know, equally thousands of candidate planets that have not yet been confirmed, but, you know, uh, have been identified as possible planets. And a lot of the confirmed planets of Kepler were actually um, what we call statistically validated. So normally when we confirm a planet from the transit method, you know, we detect the, the signal um, 
around the star and we see a periodic dimming, right? But then we follow it up with all these different methods. And one of those methods includes getting a mass of the planet um, because that's like the bona fide, yes, this is a planetary mass object. It's a planetary size object. You know, this is can be nothing else but a planet because sometimes it could be another star <laughs> orbiting a star. So that's the issue, right? But so with Kepler, so many of its stars were far away and faint that we can't feasibly get masses. So people use statistical techniques to basically demonstrate that there's no other feasible possibility for these planets to be anything but planets. Um, and that's great. And that's fine. That's, that's you know, a, like a commonly accepted thing to do in, the, in our scientific community. Um, but that's how one way in which Kepler has so many confirmed planets, because you could just do this mass like validation, um, using statistics with tests, um, you know, we're five years in, we, you know, I would say only have right 300 something confirmed planets, um, instead of the thousands that Kepler has, but it's only 300 because pretty much all of those have masses now. That's the difference. So people are taking the time to measure masses and confirm the planets rather than doing like these statistical studies. Not right. And to get mass, like you have to do the radio velocity technique yeah. so to double time. check it. Mm -hmm. And you have to wait, you know, sometimes for the orbit, like you need to collect data across the whole orbit to, to get the mass um, and accurately enough to say it's a planet. And so people are taking the time to do that with tests. And so it's like, they're more um, like uh, carefully scrutinized, I guess, <laughs> in a way. You know, it's just more rigorous the way that test planets are being confirmed. And, and again, not I'm not knocking Kepler at all. I worked on Kepler too, and it's amazing. <laughs> so it's just a different way you have to deal with these planets because, you know, with tests, we can actually follow them up and get masses. With Kepler, we couldn't. But that's not to say that with tests, you know, somebody might come along and do like, a huge bulk statistical validation and say, okay, all these candidates, because there are over 4,000 candidates still that have not yet been confirmed from tests. So it's, it's up there with Kepler, like in terms of the signals identified, see? So test has identified all these signals, but it's just that nobody has yet <laughs> done like a, uh, the work to weed through those and like, you know, do a bulk validation and say, okay, these are nothing but planets right so are the planetary confirmation tools mm -hmm. scaling up as quickly as the candidate discovery tools mm. well with some of the yeah follow-up capabilities um some of them are like uh where we get high spatial resolution imaging of the system to look at the star and say, is it a single star system or is it a du double star system? You know, maybe it's triple star because that affects our interpretation of the planet. Um, so we actually have a pretty healthy uh, crop of facilities that can do that work. Um, so that doesn't seem to be a limiting factor in in, um, in confirming planets from tests. Um, but yeah, the radio velocities to measure masses, um, there are only so many facilities that um, can do this. And the thing is, it's, um, it's all these facilities are more than capable of measuring masses of like giant planets, right? Like Jupiter size, even um, Neptune size planets, um, like four times the size of Earth. 
Um, but it's when you get to the smaller planets that it takes, you know, more time um, because you have to monitor the star for a while to get a precise mass of the planet. And for better or worse, too, test is finding a lot of small planets. <laughs> right. So yeah. Even though we can, like, even though the stars are bright and we can get good radio velocity measurements, it's still hard to measure the mass of a small planet, you know, no matter how you slice it. <laughs> so, but it, but yeah. it is interesting to me, like, if you sort of envision this as an assembly line and mm-hmm. on the one side of the assembly line, you've got something like TESS that is finding these candidates and then throwing them into the database. And then each one of these candidates, someone has to watch that one star continuously mm-hmm. to potentially find the next time it gets a transit. If you know if it's not discovered within that first 27-day period, then you're going to have to watch that star on its own. And if it's found 20 stars, then you're going to need 20 different observatories watching this one star. Mm-hmm. And then you're also, if you do find a, a another transit, you're then going to need to follow on with a radio velocity measurement. As you said, there's there's not a lot of of those capable yet, although there's more coming online. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to want to te- check the atmosphere, and that's yeah. you know like James yeah. Webb is busy, um, yeah. <laughs> and you know aerial telescope is coming online. So, mm-hmm. I wonder, do you think that this pipeline mm-hmm. has is that changing the way astronomers think about how do we digest these planetary discoveries? Mm. You know, I think it it has or it is starting change, I would say, you know, I don't know if it has quite yet, but it's, it's definitely coming to light. You know, you mentioned, um, the aerial mission, for example, that's European mission that's supposed to study, uh, something like hundreds or thousands of planets to study their atmospheres and, you know, test targets are all going to be great for that. Um, but you know, we're taking the time to measure masses and then, you know, so, that we only have 300 and Ariel wants a thousand, let's say, you know, so how do we, yeah, maybe speed up that part of the pipeline or yeah, is there a bottleneck and what does that mean? Um, you know, I think people are, are also thinking about this in terms of other missions. Um, Cause after the James Webb space telescope that launched in, you know, um, 2021 uh, is NASA's launching the Roman Space Telescope, and that's also going to find actually a bunch of exoplanets. Right. But, <laughs> but that's going to be throwing more into the front of the hopper. Exactly. So right. that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's going to find a boatload more, but then what do we do, right? Yeah. And so I think people are starting to look at, yeah, Tess's uh, pipeline, if you will, you know, to um, go from uh, candidate planet to confirmed. And Think about how that can be more generally applied to other missions. Um, so I know people are starting to think about that, but you know, I don't, I don't know if there's uh, going to be actions just yet. <laughs> but that's definitely a thought, you know, because it's bigger than tests, right? It's bigger than because with Roman and aerial needs, and um, uh, the European Space Agency also has um, the Plato mission that's also going to be looking at transit. So yeah, there's yeah. all of these that's going to add fuel to. The, the, oh, and the Gaia mission is about to throw its too. next data release, exactly. and that'll be all via the astrometry method. So again, yeah. so it's like, can you take you know what what seems to be working well for tests? You know, this there is a giant collaboration that that goes through every step from candidate 
to doing all the follow-up that you can think of to rule out, you know, anything but a planet. Um, can that be scaled appropriately for different missions or how does it need to be scaled, right, or adapted or whatnot? So, yeah, that, that question's um, definitely come up uh, very recently in conversations I've been in. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's like sure would be nice if we knew mm. if any of those are planets. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so. The, so it's like, you don't want, you don't want to let the candidates get too far out ahead of you. Yeah. So let's talk about some highlights. What are some planets mm. that you thought were really cool in the, the test mm. first operation? Yeah. I mean, it's, I will say, you know, with five years of, of data, um, it's hard to remember what came from what year at this point. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I will start by saying um, in terms of cool test discoveries, something – so, okay, test was designed to find all these small planets, you know, again, around bright nearby stars, and it's doing that, and that's great, and that's really cool. But I've been really intrigued by the stuff that is not those types of planets <laughs> because – I'm actually surprised Tess has been finding a lot of giant planets still. And that surprised me because we have had ground-based surveys who also were studying and doing transit searches for years. And Tess has intriguingly been finding this population of giant planets around um, small M-dwarf stars, which is really interesting because um, M-dwarf stars are much smaller than the sun in some cases. And so the way we, you know, understand that stars form and planets form, they form from this disk of material. And so with M stars, they often were thought to have like smaller disks of material around them. And then they would form a bunch of small planets, essentially. So when we find a giant planet around a small star, we're like, how did that happen? <laughs> right. You know, like, or are there no other planets in the system? You know, did the giant planet gobble up everything? <laughs> like, and, and what does that mean? Hmm. Um, you know, it's it, for the evolution of these systems in the long run. So and, almost like the 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 gravity is so close to the star itself that you just get one big planet as opposed to mm -hmm. a very diverse set of planets across a larger solar system. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So that is something that was not really um, thought to be common at all. And now TESS has been finding um, – enough that they seem, you know, to be more common than we thought. <laughs> so there's, um, uh, you know, I don't know exact numbers offhand, but there's certainly um, over 10 at this point, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's still more than we expected, you know, just from kind of when you think about randomly looking at nearby stars, you know, the, the, and then if you extrapolate to other stars, then it's, it's the occurrence rates of these things are higher than we thought. Um, so that like as a general population is just super interesting. Um, so there's a bunch of, of those have been found. Um, but on that same front, uh, Tess has also revealed a, um, a giant planet around a white dwarf star. So that's fascinating because this is a star that is basically at the end of stellar evolution life cycle. So it's like the sun will die one day effectively, <laughs> right? And it'll shed all its outer layers. And at the end of this day, there'll be left this like really, really dense uh, white dwarf star. 
And the thing is, though, when the sun sheds its outer layers, we think, well, a lot of planets nearby are going to be destroyed because the sun's going to grow bigger. And then it's still an energetic process, the shedding, if you will. So we say, what will survive such an event? Well, now we have direct evidence that something can survive an event like that because we found a planet around the white dwarf um, and it seems intact. You know, it's not like a disintegrating planet or like, you know, a pile, a rubble pile or something. And um, close-ish to the to the star. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. that too. So how did it get there, right? Did it um, – uh, it couldn't have formed there, like in the you know in the first place. So it must have kind of migrated inward from its a more distant orbit at some point. Whenever that star used to be like the sun, possibly, and then it evolved, and then there was still yeah enough somehow a, a planet survived. <laughs> right. So <laughs> yeah. it would be like getting Jupiter close into the into the inner solar system mm-hmm. after the sun dies. Exactly. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Somehow. <laughs> right. You know, TBD, how? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 But um, yeah. And so Tess has, has shown us that that is possible, which is, you know, really cool. And again, you know, just raises more questions, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. That's why we do science. <laughs> what about things that, that it hasn't found? Like uh, mm. things that you were expecting to see, but actually haven't turned up in large numbers? Hmm. I'm thinking about things like, say, the the yeah. Neptune desert. Oh, yeah. So that's an interesting question, that specific case. Um, yeah, because – so this Neptune desert, yeah, that's kind of like this range where um, Kepler and, and some other ground-based surveys, you know, showed us effectively that there's this region where small planets kind of close to the star – just don't really exist, right? That's the implication of this, this desert. But small planets being like, yeah, around the size of Neptune. So um, you could have smaller planets. And so the idea was that um, these planets kind of in this medium size um, didn't survive that close to the star. Like they they would get their outer layers of gas um, stripped essentially and their atmosphere stripped off. So then all that was left was like a smaller core. But then the more giant planets, right, could survive because they have more mass to hold on to their atmosphere. So then there was this like in-between limbo that couldn't survive. Well, long story short, Tess is actually finding more planets in the Neptune desert than I thought too. <laughs> so it's isn't really that rare after all. I don't know. Like wow, that's, okay. that's an open question. Yeah. So Tess keeps finding planets in the desert, put it that way. <laughs> right. And and we're like, okay. So it could be again that you know Kepler had some some biases because it again only looked at one part of the sky and so you know could it be that it depends on the type of star that that these planets are around you know um, I don't know if people have really looked into that yet like we might not have enough you know numbers yet still for mm. that like is it dependent you know on the type of star essentially or some other feature <laughs> but yeah. Do you, do you feel like like the field is starting to shift from here are cool planets? And I could see, you know, you had a couple of of, of classes of planets mm-hmm. that you're interested in, but mm-hmm. it's getting harder and harder to think of interesting planets individually, specifically, because we're moving to a larger statistical collection of planets. 
So is is that sort of starting to make it hard to think about your favorite planet and shifting into I like well, these thousand? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I mean, that's a great question. And it's, and it's, it's a funny thing to think about because um, I remember when I was in graduate school and I was writing like my first scientific paper, you know, and in the introduction, it said something like, you know, we know of like 20 something transiting planets <laughs> because this was before Kepler launched when I wrote my first paper. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so back then point being, I could, I knew something about every single transiting planet, like all 20, whatever, like I could name all their properties, you know, their temperature, their size, their yeah. mass, right? Like they were more individualized. Exactly. Um, and then Kepler launched and you're like, Oh my gosh, we have these populations of planets. Right. But there are still absolutely like individual ones that we all know and love <laughs> and study, you know, um, uh, a lot. Uh, but I think with tests, um, yeah, part of, I mean, it's continuing that story that Kepler started of with the populations, like you said, exactly. Like it is a more of a bulk thing, like giants around small stars and, you know, planets around white dwarfs and these hot Neptunes in the desert and all that. Um, but yeah, part of it is um, there's so many planets now. I can think of some that are really interesting, but I forget their names. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, because I'd have to look it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, for sure. So there's I'm this like, one that we just yeah. reported on that it's that it's orbiting yeah. at like 90 <laughs> degrees to its star. And that's weird. Yeah, um, yeah. But I forget it's TOI something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, yeah, just the other week, I mean, there is an awesome dis test discovery put out of a planet that um, uh, might be like Io and have, you know, volcanic activity right. all over its surface. Uh, for life of me, I can't think of the name of it. <laughs> Neither can I. <laughs> but it's an awesome discovery. Yeah, sounds cool. <laughs> well, Star Wars, it's Mustafar. So yeah, I think exactly. we're just, yeah, so we'll just call it, you know. So we just name them all. Like, yeah, yeah, name them all Star Wars planets and, and call it a day, yeah. Tatooine yeah. and Hoth and all, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. but yeah, and so like it is absolutely super interesting um, that all these discoveries. I mean, Tess has found, yeah. Um, well, one of its first discoveries was really cool. I do remember it was around the star Pymensa, and that's is because it's a naked eye star. And so it was just really cool that you know Tess could again find a planet um, around a star that you could see with your naked eye. You know, <laughs> and that's because we don't really have many of those. Right. I think we have two. <laughs> So you're saying, so, like, if I go outside and I watch that star very carefully with my eyes, I might <laughs> notice it dim every well, now and then. you probably need really, really good vision and right. <laughs> be able to stare for hours, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> without blinking. <laughs> now, you know, one of the things that was most exciting about Kepler was mm -hmm. it was going to be the machine that would maybe find another Earth, an mm -hmm. Earth-sized world orbiting around a sun-like star. It was staring at the spot in the sky. It was going to wait long enough, multiple years, build up that data find that other Earth. And then, of course, it lost its reaction wheels. And so it had to shift focus to the M dwarves and it wasn't able to make that discovery. Does TESS have that capability? Like assuming the spacecraft lasts forever, mm -hmm. 20 years, it's going to keep going and going and going. Will it eventually build up enough data that it could find an Earth-sized world orbiting around a sun-like star. I mean, the key is that 365-day yeah. orbital period, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, because, I mean, to 
to answer half of that first, <laughs> it's, it is, you know, um, Tess has already found a few Earth-sized planets, right? But they're not around sun-like stars. Um, and they, I mean, are equally interesting, you know, for different reasons. Like some of them do have the right temperature to put them, you know, where they might have liquid water on their surface. Um, but they might be around, you know, a star that's much smaller than the sun. So uh, Tess has been finding those already, which is great because that also, like, it really wasn't designed for that, you know. <laughs> it was designed to find small planets around small stars in general, but <clears throat> not necessarily, like, in the so-called habitable zone. And so, yeah, I think with enough data, we've already seen evidence of some systems that Tess has discovered there's been um, transiting planets discovered. And then with like another um, few months of data on that star, the data was able to reveal additional planet. And so we've been able to find, and, and these are all small planets in this case. I know the name of this one. It was TOI 700 system. <laughs> so that's a really interesting system. But it has multiple small planets. And uh, yeah, more test data clearly revealed another planet. And um, it's that kind of thing where I feel like we might need to look at systems that we know, like stars that we know already have planets and like start the search there rather than kind of like a blind search for an Earth around the sunlight star, just because it's really hard to look at, you know, for these signals. They're just extremely tiny. <laughs> and like you mentioned, 365 days means, you know, even if, well, let's say tests lasted for 20 years. <laughs> you could have 20 years of data potentially. Um, but, you know, stars change, which affects the signal over time. You know, they have spots that come and go. So that can affect how well we can detect planets. Um, the spacecraft could keep working, but some of its properties might change enough to affect the data quality over no, time. No, it's going to live forever. Don't worry about yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Let's yeah. say it's perfectly yeah, Perfect, beautiful, stable orbit, solar okay. panels, it's great. It's yeah. doing terrific. Yeah, yeah, reaction yeah. wheels so, will last forever. Yeah. So I think it's a matter of, you know, how carefully can you stack the data to see those signals? But that's why I think, yes, if if you can at least look at systems where you know there's already planets there, then that increases your odds extremely higher, you know, to find additional small planets that could be Earth-like in the habitable zone, you know, around the sun-like star. Um, so I think that would be maybe the easiest way to do it. Not saying you can't just do, you know, a routine search of all sunlight stars, <laughs> right? Um, but it's it's still really hard, like with Kepler. Um, Kepler could do it in three, four years um, with its data quality. Um, but even then, you know, people have said if Kepler just had like one more year of data, that would have made a world of difference <laughs> because... With three transits, you're like, okay, maybe, maybe two are noise. You know, I don't know, like the odds of them being just noise increases or some other artifact <clears throat> in the instrument. But so, it, does, yeah. it does feel like there's a gap in that capability mm -hmm. right now. Like when you think about JWST, mm -hmm. uh, even the Hubble Space Telescope as follow-on instruments for doing very detailed studies on something that you've already discovered, we're seeing incredible you know, 
analysis of the atmospheres of planets around other stars. This is all terrific. And then you've got this next generation of the ground based observatories coming online with the extremely large telescope and the giant Magellan telescope and, and, and so they're going to be able to really well categorize planets. But I feel like we don't have the targets yet. And, Mm. and Tess is, is one of the only missions out there that is that is gobble you know that is gathering potential targets and saying look at this try this what about this mm-hmm. i mean is there is there a gap now for like if we do want to find that earth-sized world and i know exoplanets exoplanetary scientists love all the planets but yeah. you would really <laughs> like to find an earth-sized world orbiting a sun-like star in the habitable zone do we need a new mission is there something that would be the gadget to to find those candidates that we could do the fall on observations. Um, I mean, it was Kepler, right? Like, is like yeah. Kepler is this Earth-sized hole <laughs> in the pipeline, right? Well, I will say, you know, I'll take my previous answer and shorten it down in 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 the sense of, you know, with tests, tests may not have been designed to do this. But people will absolutely try to do it anyway. Right. <laughs> As the bottom line. That's right? what I wanted to hear. Yes. They will absolutely try to. Yeah. No matter what. It's really hard. But they will still be looking at all the years of data to, you know, and all the sun-like stars to see what small or size planets they can find. Like, people will be doing this. Um, and I think, yeah, you're right. It, it is an interesting, you know, thing to think about. Like, okay, what if people do try this with tests but aren't able to, you know, make confident, right, um, uh, discoveries. Well, given the amount of time it takes to develop new missions, <laughs> you know, all of that, it's hard to say that, um, that there would be a new one approved. I mean, I, you never know, right. Um, or, or if it's justified enough, sure. I think, um, even though I mentioned, you know, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope earlier, even though that's got a very different design, it's really designed to look towards the galactic center and, you know, different part of the galaxy yet again compared to Kepler um, and Tess, it's still expected to find a bunch of Earth-sized planets between its various detection techniques, actually. So we are going to get interesting but, information from that. But aren't they gravitational microlensing? Like, don't you just get one some shot at the planet and then you don't get to easily make follow on observations? Uh, yeah. So that is the primary mission. Um, they're running the primary surveys. Absolutely. Um, but by sheer design of doing brightness measurements to mm. get microlensing, it's going to actually, people have predicted it's going to discover, uh, hundreds of thousands of transiting planets right. more more than kepler more than tess <laughs> somehow like it's hard to fathom as a side effect as a side effect right yeah right as yeah. loose change but in the couch the caveat hundreds there of thousands of planets yeah exactly and then the caveat there being that they're all be like in um towards the galactic center which means that it's incredibly dense part of the sky so how do we confirm those planets right like we're confident that we're going to find large numbers but yeah, are we going to find statistics there? And and even then, Roman is also not designed necessarily to find these. Um, it depends how long Roman operates as well, right? Like, okay, if it's looking at some parts for four, for a few years, uh, you know, can you stack a few 
of those to find long period transiting planets. Um, you know, probably, but again, it's not designed for that. So, and it's not going to be necessarily comprehensively scanning the same spots of the sky. Like I'm sure that there are plans to do a, let's watch this part of the sky. And then one year later, let's come back and look at the same spot. And then one year after that, let's look Mm -hmm. at the same spot and hope we, hopefully we, we find (laughs) something, Yeah. but it's different than Kepler, which is just staring continuously at the same region of the, of the sky. I mean, I think maybe people don't appreciate how much of a shoestring budget TESS is compared to some of these other flagship missions. It is in the low hundreds of millions of dollars compared to the many billions of dollars. Right. Is there room for a super, like if you were to like make a super TESS, <laughs> um, what would you do, do you think? Like what would I do differently or? As, no, like, like, yeah, like, you know, if you're sitting down and NASA says, okay, like give us a super test, mm. but don't go crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just something that, that fall like, because I see Teth as like a pathfinder that it, mm-hmm. that it, the, the orbit is wonderful. Mm-hmm. The capabilities of the spacecraft are, are perfect for what it's trying to do. But as I said, there is this mm-hmm. gap in the pipeline. What do you think a super test mm-hmm. might look like? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, oh, it's kind of hard because, I mean, I want it to immediately say, well, you need, you know, bigger cameras, bigger mirror, like, or well, Tessa's camera, which is not, you know, the same as like Kepler's mirror. And that's different. Um, and so, but then you also need to have that large field of view, like if you want to be efficient about scanning the entire sky. So it's like, you have to kind of trade off. Do you want um, a bigger mirror? a large field of view, you know, but is it as large as the original tests, the field of view at one time? Um, Do you then therefore have to spend more time scanning different parts of the sky or let, you know, like, like there's all these trades (laughs) that come to mind. Right. I mean, I guess, is it balance that? Yeah. Like, would you prefer a longer, like, like the test is like, well, like 16, cameras i'm trying to remember the number but it has like a whole bunch of really well, it has high- four, four cameras but yeah each one has multiple right like, yeah and yeah. they're and it, which is different than a big telescope lens like they're yeah. they're each mm-hmm. individual camera so yeah i guess you know you could get look at see fainter transits mm-hmm. which would maybe let you see fainter objects passing in front of the stars or you could do a longer exposure which would let you see more transits in the same area, but that's more of a, how do we point our spacecraft as a point? So maybe a wider field of view with less turning, yeah. more cameras. If it was a ball of cameras, is that? Yeah. I mean, people have thought about that for ground-based telescopes. I know <laughs> like they have all these innovative, you know, like, um, Oh, they, they, I don't even know how to describe what they look like, like uh, a spider, you know, like with eight eyes or I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just, well, it's like the uh, dragonfly. There's, there's definitely mm-hmm. some stuff here on earth that are huge yeah. collections of relatively inexpensive cameras. There's like yeah. 64 Canon yeah. Mark twos bolted together. Right. Right. <laughs> but then you imagine doing all that and making them like space flight ready, mm-hmm. you know, like the cost just balloons. <laughs> so, okay. Probably. So that it's a, it's a ball, like a, like a buckyball mm. of cameras mm-hmm. all watching every part of the sky simultaneously. 
nonstop. That's mm-hmm. is that is that it? I mean, it's it's I, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I was thinking too about so we mentioned Plato earlier. Um, he says uh, space mission that's coming up. Um, you know, I think towards the end of the decade, early twenty thirties, and Plato does, to my understanding, have this um, association with looking also for Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars. I don't really know their survey strategy, like if it, it I, because I think they're doing more areas of the sky than Kepler did, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, right, I clearly need to interview on. someone from the Plato team. It's yeah, because it's, yeah. it's super relevant, first of all. <laughs> but yeah, um, but yeah, there's there's this whole um, you know idea again of like following up the Kepler, right? And and but not following up Kepler discoveries, but adding to that, right? And saying, yeah, Kepler started that, so let's keep pushing. And so um, whatever the Plato team is doing, you know, I think will. Um, will be a huge step, uh, hopefully in that direction as well. Um, with tests, I can say, you know, we are, I know you want it to live forever. It might. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) Um, guarantee it. I just like, I just promised you. So don't worry about (laughs) it. Yeah. Um, but formally, um, we are currently, um, have funded operations through, uh, late 2025, and so then every three years we have to reapply basically to keep the mission going. But we also have the opportunity to change Tessa's current observing strategy. So um, we, you know, right now we're just kind of still scanning, you know, flipping back and forth between North and South. Um, but, and, you know, every 30 days, like kind of stepping around the sky. So we could adapt or change our strategy potentially to start like staring at some parts longer um, to continue. like. Oh, the okay. Journey. So you could do like a three year mm-hmm. mini Kepler where you just stared at one spot in the sky. Possibly. Yeah. 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 Before it depends you, on yeah. a lot of things, but yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, like yeah. then you don't get a chance to look at everything else. Well, problem. of course. Yeah. And then, you know, making sure with the, you know, again, with the orbit, you got to stay away from the sun. Obviously, <laughs> you don't want to point the sun um, mm-hmm. as you go along your orbit. So, yeah, because Kepler was also in a very different orbit um, than Tess. So that helped it, you know, observe one part of the sky stably for however long it did. Right. Um, and so with Tess, yeah, you know, there are ideas floating around like that we could that's really interesting change things you know we don't have to keep doing the same thing are, are there <laughs> other so you know see there, there are ideas floating around i mean mm-hmm. what are some other ideas on how you might change your observing strategy to do different kinds of science i mean i i, I sort of like this idea of the folks with the extremely large telescope saying like mm-hmm. we got nothing to point this thing at <laughs> we're waiting yeah right? <laughs> the most powerful yeah. telescope humanity's ever built and there's no targets yeah. so hurry up yeah. Tess. So what are some I mean, other ideas that you have, what you could, how you could change tests? Yeah. Um, I think one, one reasonable idea is, um, so right now with tests, uh, you know, it, it, each 30 days, right. It kind of covers, um, a, the sector swath of the sky that goes up to one of the ecliptic poles and, um, that leads to a continuous viewing zone. So as it steps every 30 days, that ecliptic pole area is um, pretty much continuously observed already. 
Um, so there is a part of the sky that we do get long time baseline. Right. And so an idea has been, um, you know, we could shift further away from the ecliptic plane and have more kind of focus around the continuous viewing zone, like just kind of shift the entire field of view north or, you know, south, I guess, depending which hemisphere you're in. And so just kind of shifting the part of the sky that you're in, but to get more coverage near those continuous areas that we could stare at um, ascent effectively longer. So you um, lose a little bit of your equatorial region, but now yeah. you would have this larger overlapping poles right. that is being observed for an entire six months. Yeah. Or it right. depends. Yeah. How long, but it could be, yeah, even, you know, a year that we're getting a mm -hmm. good chunk around the pole um, compared to right now we'll get like one camera on the pole. We could get like two cameras around the pole or something worth of data. That's so, really interesting. I like that, that idea a lot. That idea is floated around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's stuff like that, that you could do to adapt tests as is, you know, like without launching a super test <laughs> or, you know. Oh, any. so you're declining my offer of the super test then? Well, I'm not declining. I'm oh, okay. Saying. All right. All right. So There's clear. always uh, creative ways. Let me just put my checkbook <laughs> away then. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I guess what what is next? I mean, are there some interesting announcements, any interesting things that people should be watching out for in the coming weeks and months with tests? Um. Yeah, I mean, with, um, well, I mentioned, we just missed it. There was that really cool volcanic planet result that just came out. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I think a couple interesting things coming up um, include, actually, um, TESS. So this goes back to the prime mission days, actually. But TESS and uh, the K2 mission, Kepler's follow-up, they overlapped in observation time for a very brief time period. And so we have data um, actually from both observatories and that has helped us, uh, not me, but you know, some scientists find uh, some, uh, some of Kepler's final planets, if you will. Um, and Tess was able to contribute to that. So that's kind of cool. Um, you know, like a nice uh, passing the baton. Yeah. Again. <laughs> but also provides some calibration. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. So that's fun to think about, but one thing I'm personally excited about with TESS moving forward is, um, so as TESS moves on its observations, um, this coming fall, um, it will be observing uh, actually towards the ecliptic plane again, which it really hasn't done much of. We normally avoid a lot of that um, just because there's a lot of um, like scattered light or stray light from the sun that, um, you know, just affects the cameras and the data quality, but uh, we're able to observe the ecliptic this fall and we'll actually be observing the star TRAPPIST-1 for the first time ever with TESS. And TRAPPIST-1 is infamous <laughs> for having seven rocky planets. Um, and so I'm really excited to see what TESS shows us for TRAPPIST-1. Um, we're only observing it for one like 27 day chunk, but um, you know, we'll, I'm hoping we'll see, you know, multiple transits of the planets and be able to contribute to that story because TRAPPIST-1 is also a heavy JWST target. <laughs> so um, I'm excited to see what comes out of that. Yeah, we've gotten one observation announced from JWST so far. Like clearly they're going to turn this into like yeah. seven sequels that we're going <laughs> to have to wait. Oh, yeah. There's one planet at a time. <laughs> there's more coming. And yeah. Yeah, I'm involved in some of that too. <laughs> 
Oh, so. okay. Do they? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess you you gotta you gotta wait until the embargo lifts. But uh, yeah, well, some of the data hasn't even been taken yet. So so the one program I'm involved in for Trappist One, yeah. um, the data is starting to come in actually in June. So we haven't even gotten our data yet. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. We're excited, but but I, so that's why like I'm excited because test ties into that story now. Like you know, one of the most famous planetary systems and tests will be able to contribute. So that's really cool. And then, um, yeah. And then, you know, that's when TESS is starting, actually, it'll be starting at sixth year of science at that point, which is crazy to think about. Um, and so I am excited to see what else we get out of these ecliptic observations because they're covering now fields of the sky where the K2 mission observed again. And that's, we haven't, been able to revisit those areas of the sky before, you know, for five plus years now. So um, K2 found a lot of interesting targets and planets, especially around young stars and in like star clusters where stars have just formed. So that's another population of planets that um, TESS can, you know, has been contributing to that I think is going to be really fascinating to see all the young planets that TESS can find um, moving forward. And some of them might be, you know, ones K2 already saw, but I think the few that K2 found tells us that there's many more waiting to be found again. Mm -hmm. So hopefully Tess will, will be able to support that. So I think a lot of that's going to come out, you know, in the, in the coming years because of this looking towards the ecliptic, which is, you know, the opposite of the pole that we were talking about. Like if you stared at the pole, but you know, it's, it's uh, see, that's why you have to balance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully yeah. we'll come back in 20 years and yeah. you'll let me know how Tess is doing still <laughs> yeah. and that's we can it. celebrate the launch of super Tess. Um, <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and congratulations on, on success of the first observing run. And here's to many, many more with Tess. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Take care. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipelin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbeoff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.